Hey everyone, a uh, different kind of intro today. My guest this week is Joan Jeffrey, director and creator of the Research Center for Arts and Culture at the Actors Fund in New York City, and former director of the graduate program in arts administration at Columbia University. In 2004, she co-authored a study called Life After Dance, Career Transition of Professional Dancers, and I think it's as relevant now as it was then. I wanted to have Joan on the show because while I was reading the study, I felt like I was reading my own words, um, felt like my own experience was on the page, and it helped me feel connected to a bigger group and like my experience isn't mine alone. So many dancers and just people in general are in a really weird spot right now, and a lot of people don't know what they're going to do next. For some that feels fine, but for a lot of us, I think that can feel scary, uh, confusing, depressing. Uh, downright suffocating. If you're feeling any of that, I'd recommend you check out the study. Uh, it's not a long read. I'm super glad Joan came on the show. She's a great human being and she really knows her stuff. I hope you enjoy the episode. But now, our friend Tchaikovsky. Welcome to Two Two Guys, a podcast about ballet hosted by ballet dancers. My name is Keelan, and today I have on the show very, very special guest, Joan Jeffrey. Welcome to the show, Joan. Thank you. Very nice to be here. You're in Brooklyn right now, yeah? I am. Brooklyn, uh, do you, I mean, you weren't born there, so you wouldn't have like a Brooklyn accent, but do you no, have any- No, I wasn't, and I shouldn't have a Brooklyn accent because I used to be in the theater. Right. <laughs> do you have any Brooklynisms that have made their way into your- personality into your your being oh, probably probably i speak with my hands too much <laughs> right right do you watch basketball by any chance occasionally because your team is doing really well right now with the brooklyn okay Nets i are, wouldn't even know that all you know, right fine it's a good time to be a brooklyn basketball fan even though there aren't a whole lot of brooklyn basketball fans <laughs> so uh, i found out about you uh really a couple weeks ago we made this happen pretty quickly um I read a research paper that you wrote in 2004 about dancers transitioning out of dance. Specifically, it seemed like it was mostly ballet and contemporary dancers. And it totally resonated 100% with what I'm looking at right now as I'm kind of staring down the barrel of a possible transition out of dance. And I thought, as I'm reading it, I thought, oh, I got to see if I can get this person on the show. And thankfully for me, you obliged. And so here we are. Um, having a conversation. Do you think you could tell the people at home a little bit about just what you do, your background, if you don't mind? Sure. Um, currently, and for a long time, I've been the head of the Research Center for Arts and Culture, which I created um, about 35 years ago at Columbia University, which is known for doing research on the condition and situation of living artists, mostly in the United States. And part, the study that you refer to, which is a study of career transition for dancers in quite a few countries around the world, is part of that three-decade research looking at the condition and situation of living artists. I started professionally as a poet, then I became an actress. Uh, I ended up accidentally in academia at Columbia, and that turned into a full-time job 
running the graduate program in arts administration, first at the School of the Arts, then at Teachers College. And I retired in 2011 because I had created a legacy project for older visual artists called Art Cart Saving the Legacy, which came out of research at the research center called Above Ground. That research was followed with research on older performing artists in LA and New York called Still Kicking, which gave rise to a project I now work on at the Actors Fund called the Performing Arts Legacy Project. And we could talk about that more in a little while. But this is to say that when I was doing the transition for dancer study and a slightly prior study on jazz musicians, I became acutely aware of aging in the arts. And people are very often invisible as they age, but they're even more invisible sometimes if they're older artists. And dancer transition was kind of a microcosm of that for me, because while we think about aging in the chronologically, uh, now in the 70s, 80s, 90s, et cetera, for dancers, as you know, it's no news to you, uh, aging is often in the 30s and 40s, mm -hmm. because that's when dancers are facing what do they do next with certainly a body that is aging, even though many dancers are dancing well into their 50s and occasionally older, and that there are many more older dance companies of older dancers in a number of countries. But still the vast majority of us are looking at the end of career, best case scenario, 40 years old. Very often it's, it's a lot sooner than that. Right, and we found that dancers overestimate the, the time they yeah. will be dancing, that they actually end a little earlier. Yeah. So let's, let's definitely get to that because there was some stuff in the study that was like, it really just put it all into perspective. But so uh, I find your own story, I think is uh, fascinating. And this episode here, this conversation is quite meta because we're talking about dancers transitioning, which is a parallel with artists transitioning. You yourself were an artist who transitioned. Part of what you transitioned into happened to be studying artist transitioning and facilitating artist transitioning. And I'm interviewing you and I happen to be an artist at the beginning of a transition. So it's, it's a lot of layers here um, that all kind of point to the same thing. I think that's true, but I need to tell you about your use of the word transition in my own career, which I was so young when I changed from being uh, an actress into working in academia, I was 30, that I really can, I don't think of it as transition. I think of it as growing up. Okay. Well, I left Estonia at 30. And uh, okay. so I'm, I'm in that stage of my life now and uh, asking probably a lot of the similar questions that you had to ask at the time. Um, and so I can tell you, at least for me, it feels like a transition. Maybe down the line, okay. I'll look back at it as growing up. But, um, you know, right now I'm, keenly aware of how many questions there are to really ask that I had no idea were even kind of going to happen, you know, needed to be answered even a year ago when I was still dancing, right? So this paper you wrote in 2004, actually, no, it wouldn't be a paper, right? This no, it's a, it's a research project. Yeah. It's called Making Changes, the 
in the transition of dancers to post-performance careers. And I should add that I had two co-authors mm -hmm. who were brilliant, William mm -hmm. Baumel, who was an extremely famous cultural economist in the US, and David Throsby, who was still a famous cultural economist in Australia. Mm -hmm. The three of you really put together something fantastic. I'll start off with a quote from Kevin McKenzie that I'm lifting directly from the project. The retiring dancer and the heartbroken lover are never more alike than when their relationships end. And so this is Kevin McKenzie, longtime director of American Ballet Theater. And I totally got that. I was reading it laying on this very couch that I'm sitting on now. And I was like, yeah, this is totally like, it's that breakup when you split up with somebody that you love and you've been with for a long time and they don't, don't, don't want to speak to you anymore. And you don't even know how to move forward. Like you, you have to pick up the pieces of your life and find how do I stitch those pieces back together and make something cohesive. And so I know that your work is artists of all natures. Most of the stuff I'm speaking about is going to be about dancers, right? This is a dance specific and almost ballet specific podcast. So if this kind of keeps coming back to ballet, you'll understand why. So, so many dancers, I think, are so wrapped up in what we're doing that we lose track of who we are outside of that. Like we don't even necessarily have a sense of identity. We don't have a sense, like a complete sense of who we are distinct from ballet. And in the research project, it seemed to, to verify this. There are a lot of people that don't actually ask these questions until we have to, until we're forced to. The question of what am I and who am I if I'm not a dancer? It's interesting because when we began this study, the, the optimal question for studying former dancers is how to find them. Because even though there are four transition centers, now there are more, but there were four then uh, all over the world. Not all of them have records. Not all of them know where their dancers are. Um, they weren't so well organized in many of these ways. And in the States in particular, we took a real research gamble and we said, you know, let's go to companies, especially ballet companies, guessing that many of their former dancers stayed in touch with them mm. in some way or that they would know where to reach them. And that was very true. And I remember when I began the study and I was speaking to people who hadn't been artists themselves and they would say, well, how are you going to describe a former dancer? I mean, aren't they doing something else now? And I said, obviously, you don't know anything about dancers because being a dancer is an identity. It's not just a job. So mm -hmm. if you are a former dancer or a current dancer, you're always a dancer. You're a dancer for your whole life. There are people we talk to who are 85, who, of course, were still dancers. Mm -hmm. And this is very hard for people who had not had some kind of experience in the arts to understand. Yeah. Why don't, I'll touch on a few things that really stood out from the, the study and then we can kind of move, move beyond that. So there was a section that looked at expected challenges versus actual challenges. So the, the challenges that uh, when current dancers were asked, what do you think are gonna be the biggest challenges you face when you move on? And compare the numbers to the actual experienced challenges of dancers who have moved on. And I thought it was really interesting that every single challenge that was expected was a higher number than the actual challenge. So people expected to have more difficulty with every single measurable challenge than they actually faced, except for one, and it was other. So I guess people saw the list and thought, yeah, this is a pretty comprehensive list of the challenges I might face. They were actually 
uh, exaggerating how much they would be faced with those challenges, but it was the other, which I thought was interesting because it meant that there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're not predicting. That's actually what comes up at a bigger rate than we could possibly even imagine, right? It's hard to say that because I keep repeating the same challenge word a million times, but, um, but that stood out to me. I should also say for this study, the research was done in the United States, Australia, and Switzerland. The data research, the data research. Uh, there were also some profiles of about eight other countries and what goes on there in okay. the report. But the data research you're referring to, yes, was Switzerland, Australia, and the United States. Correct. So uh, in terms of preparedness, this and this, this, this will transition into a question. One of the quotes I pulled from the research it's one thing to be aware that challenges lie ahead. It's quite another to be prepared to meet them. And uh, there was a dancer, didn't give his name, but there was a dancer in his 40s who was quoted as saying, we are taught to taunt you in plie, but nobody ever tells you what it's going to be like when it's over. And that's, I can feel that. We spend so much time focused on the work and the next show and improving and all these things. We all understand that. But the actual question of like, how do I move forward now? even understanding what questions do I need to ask myself? Like, how do I even determine that? In dance, we are rewarded for our ability to be obedient and to deliver on orders, right? If I can execute orders well, I will be rewarded, I'll be promoted, I'll be given opportunities. When I no longer have a taskmaster, a regime given to me, um, a direction, and I have to self-start and self-create and figure out what is important for me, I have virtually no training in that, right? Like that isn't the skill that I've been honing for my whole career. I, I think there's a big educational piece in here. And I want to say it was the English National Ballet. I'm not completely certain, but there was one company that I interviewed that actually made career transition part of the work in the ballet. So I, rem I remember they would also send students to museums, to culture, to concerts, to understand the world better. And they also saw transition as part of the education of the dancer, which I absolutely think it should be 100%. Because right now, for many people, it's a cliff that you fall off. And that's the wrong way to look at it. It's simply, especially with people growing older, it's, um, you know, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. So aging is very much like this, you know, what tools do you have for that point in your life? That's another kind of transition. Well, what kind of tools do you have for transition? And that shouldn't be seen as a weakness. It shouldn't be seen as a stopgap. It shouldn't be seen as, oh, well, you can't dance, so I guess we can do this for you. It should be absolutely a positively viewed part of your education. Totally agreed. I think though, even a year ago, I might not have really been interested in those conversations. It's like if you're saying like, oh, I'm, I'm in love with this, this person. And they say, hey, but maybe you should consider your options. You go, no, no, but I'm in love with this person and the love itself is rewarding enough. A big part of all of this, I think, is do we feel like what we're doing on this earth with our limited minutes on this planet is worthwhile, is of value and is like soul enriching, right? Like if you love tennis, go play tennis, like do tennis stuff. Cause it, if it brings your joy to your soul, do it, right? If you love ice cream, work ice cream into your life. Don't deny it. I loved ballet. It was a compulsion and so many of us do, right? And so to say like, hey, I know you love it, 
but you should also consider the reality of one day you're going to have to have other things going on is I think it's very similar to saying to a teenager, like, Hey, you love this girl you're dating. You're crazy about her, but just so you know, you're going to end up breaking up at some point, dating other people. So be prepared for that. We'd be like, no, no, no. What I'm doing now is all that matters. I actually think it's more than that. I think that, you know, many parents say to their kids, well, why don't you get a teaching degree on the side or something you can fall back on? And I remember thinking as an actress, if I do any of those things, I won't do this or it will give me the cushion not to do this. Okay. And if I am not totally driven and committed and passionate about this, I won't do it. We used to say to people, what's the best advice? If you can do anything else, do it. Uh, yeah. If you can't, you better, you better be an artist. Yeah. You know, if that's the only thing on your horizon, and in a way it has to be, because that's what gets you through the difficult times. Yeah. One of my favorite authors, Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Siegel and a whole bunch of other great stuff, talks about in one book, Running from Safety, he says uh, he only writes a book if there's an idea that simply won't go away. Like he will do everything he can to not write the book. But if it just demands him when he wakes up every day, he goes, okay, fine, I'll write it. You know, you, know, you, you try to find something else to do, but when it nags at you and you can't put it down, you got to go be an artist. Let, let me just, as long as we're kind of musing about this, add a few other things. Mm -hmm. And one of them is that I think being a dancer um, is also tied up with your self-worth and your sense of confidence or not. It's also a field filled with rejection. I remember Barbara Weisberger, who was the head of the Pennsylvania Ballet, the creator of the Pennsylvania Ballet, was on the board of the research center. And one day we were talking about ballet dancers. And I used the word abusive in terms of their training. And she got furious. And she said, don't ever use that word. We do this because we want to, because we love this. So there, there are lots of viewpoints on what works, what makes you tick. And it's not the same for every person, but you have to have a very strong ego to get through a career like this. Yeah, resilience. I was speaking to a friend of mine last night who uh, we went to ballet school together. He was actually the first one. Like he was, he was accepted in fifth grade. Nobody else from our graduating class was accepted to the full-time program that early. So he was the first one. When he graduated, he, his body, you know, hadn't kind of, a lot of ballet is a gamble. It's just, did you win the genetic lottery? And how close did you get to, you know, jackpot? And his body didn't develop in the perfect way to make ballet career obvious. And I watched him over the years from a distance, try different styles of dance, leave dancing, try entirely different careers, all these things. And it never dawned on me because, because it couldn't have at the time, uh, it never dawned on me what he had been going through, right? And now that I'm at the cusp of my own journey in a similar way of actually asking these questions of who am I and what matters, I realize, you know, I, I like this, this phrase, if you spot it, you got it. Now that I have enough in me to be able to see it in him, I realize, oh my God, you know, while the rest of us were trying to get ballet jobs, he was moving on and reflecting and letting all of these ideas of what his life was gonna be fall apart and collapse, right? And it's really difficult, I think, for the ego to do that. When you say, hey, at 10 years old, I'm in a professional school and I'm in all of these ballets with the company. And then 
when it's actually your turn to go and audition, it just doesn't work out and you start to move on. It's like a collapse of all of your ideals, all of the values and all the expectations you've ever had. And to be doing it as a young man, when nobody around you really understands it, it would be, I think, frightening, uh, really sobering. I think depression is very understandable here. Uh, I wrote this quote down as well from the study. Edward Valella, legendary director, Miami City Ballet, beautiful dancer. He said, uh, I fought like crazy not to be depressed, but I certainly think I was for about 10 years. That's from the study you wrote. I get it. Like he and I aren't the exact same, but I get it. I, I woke up many mornings when I moved back to Canada a few months ago, I would wish I could go back to sleep just because if I was sleeping, I didn't have to make a decision. And I actually didn't know how to make decisions because my decisions were always either made for me or implied. You know, I get to decide what I eat in the morning, but it's pretty obvious what I'm going to eat if I got to go do class in 30 minutes. Like life becomes simple. It's almost like a military. It is like a military. And then, and you look at the, what happens to veterans when they leave. Um, I wonder, have you, have you looked at all? Have you made the connection there that the veterans leaving the military and the confusion and the collapse that they can experience, how it parallels ballet dancers? I hadn't, but it's certainly something to look at, I think. I think the other thing is that, you know, at a, at a certain age when dancers get into a company and begin working, you know, some of this may have been rumor, but I think some of it was true, was that the New York City Ballet, when Balanchine was the head of it, didn't want his dancers going to school. He didn't want them going anywhere. He wanted them to be 100% immersed in dance and in his company. And I remember sitting next to a, a young dancer in a psychology class at Columbia it was on a, when I was an undergraduate. And I asked her, you know, something about herself. And she said, well, I'm a dancer with the New York City Ballet, so don't tell anyone I'm here. <sighs> and I found that absolutely horrifying. Yeah. So part of it is the conditioning that one is given, which is kind of like the military, the conditioning to be only this in this place, doing this one thing. When in fact, I think now the world is beginning to realize that doing other things may actually enhance you, not detract from you. Mm -hmm. If I talk to anybody, especially a non-dancer, uh, somebody who's maybe dance adjacent, dance aware, but not actually a dancer. If I speak to them about the perils, the challenges of transition, the insecurities around moving on, very often I'll hear, but hey, look at all these skills you got. You're so disciplined, you're gonna do great. And I just wanna tell them all like, look, I appreciate it and you're not wrong, but that doesn't answer the question of, but what is my vocation now? Like what is in my soul? Like how do I figure out what I do with my life. Once I figure it out, yeah, yeah, I'll be disciplined. I get that part. But the answering the question and the figuring out where do I point my boat in life? You know, I would guess that there are an awful lot of graduating undergraduates in the middle of a pandemic who feel exactly the same thing because they become unmoored. Mm -hmm. The system has fallen down around them it's not what it was before. Nobody's giving them job placements. They thought they wanted X. They don't even know if X exists anymore. Yeah. What are they going to do about Y? So I think there are a lot more people who aren't thinking about it in terms of dance, but who have a similar frame of mind right now. 
Okay. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't stopped to try to connect or empathize with. Listen, the first thing I thought of was I graduated with a BFA in acting. What if I were graduating now and Broadway is closed and you know, off Broadway is great, but you can't make any money there. And regional theaters are maybe outside or maybe not. What a way to start a career. Never mind transition. What about starting one? Yeah. I, I have only sympathy for the dancers trying to get jobs now. Like, yeah, right. and there's, there's going to be a backlog of all the students who are graduating the last couple of years trying to get in. So the psychology of a dancer letting go of that identity and being able to accept something new. An interesting small study to do would be for dancers who either retire or move on to watch how long do they leave ballet pictures up as their profile photos on social media, right? It's a very good question. How long do, is our outward face still saying, no, I'm still a dancer, I'm still a dancer, look at my legs, look at my body. Because over time, that really stops representing us, right? Or like, how long does it take when we meet somebody at a dinner party after we've stopped dancing? Do we keep introducing ourselves as dancers, right? Especially if we don't have something else flashy. It's a whole validation of an identity that you've been used to, that one has been used to for so long. And it's a very personal identification. I mean, I remember when I was auditioning to be an actress and people would say, well, what are you? And I couldn't say I was an actress because I hadn't gotten a job yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wasn't mm-hmm. willing to say I'm a professional actress until somebody actually paid me to do it. But as I said, dancers keep their identities their whole lives, whether they're dancing, not dancing, retired, not retired. A part of that is who they are. No matter what else they're doing, they're still dancers. That's their frame of reference. The question is, when does that stop making you miserable? (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's a better way to put it. That's the question. When does it stop making you miserable? And how do you move that along? Like, how do you move that along in a healthy way? Do you have any tips? I mean, you're you're the laureate here. There are career transition for dancers centers for exactly this reason. People don't have to be out there completely alone. There are places to turn. There is literature to look at. There are people who have done it before. You know, there are informational interviews and people leave for all kinds of reasons. Another student of mine who became a very famous arts manager in the performing arts um, at 28 had to leave ballet because she snapped her Achilles tendon. And she remembered the exact moment of sitting on the curb in terrible pain, crying from relief that she could stop. Wow. So it's different for everybody. It's that's, really different for everybody. That's where the, the, the director of Pennsylvania said, you use the word abusive. When you're, when you're crying of relief because you get to stop and you've got a snapped Achilles, that's where we get to start looking at, okay, what's really happening here? Um, right. And also, you know, leaving, especially ballet, requires a kind of mourning. Yeah. It really does. I mean, something is dying that was alive. Something you used to be and used to do. And it really requires acknowledging that and mourning. I like to leave the listeners with action items whenever possible. I think it's probably just how my mind works. Um, you know, esoteric ideas, big ideas are great. But if we can distill it into, here's some direct pieces of information that we can use that are beneficial, immediately applicable. I like when I can do that. 
so what I'm taking from this so far is um, for anybody considering a transition or confused about it, you know, lost, right, depressed, whatever it might be, reach out to a transition center. I know that every country in the world doesn't have them. Like there are only some, there's few in the world, but I'm pretty sure that you can access their materials even if you're not in country. So reach out and consider looking at it through the lens of grieving and mourning because there's a lot of literature on that. Look for guides and support along the way. Don't minimize the loss you might be going through uh, and the confusion at having to move on, pick up the pieces, right? Do you have any idea, I don't know if your research has touched on this, how important is the way that people transition and the reason for it? Like if people choose it and it's planned versus if it's an abrupt injury, because I imagine this would have a very differing impact. Um, I think of for my own, for example, you can use me as the meta example. I was injured for a year. I came back on stage. I performed at a level that I was very proud of. And then Corona happened. So my final performance was this wild show where the orchestra, like the conductor just really didn't have his best show. And I had to figure it out. And, you know, I started doing my solo in Swan Lake in the third act and he just didn't play the music. And I'm like, okay, so when's this happening? And so I have to hold my arabesque for longer, draw it out. So that was too slow. And then at the end he plays it too fast and I'm still dancing and the music's over. And it's like, okay, well, and it was this crazy batshit show, but I pulled it off. And so I felt like, and then, and then Corona happened a week later. And that was the last show our company performed that season. And I thought, you know, things are pretty crazy right now. If that's my last time on stage, at least at that level, you know, the last time I'm going to be principal in a national theater, right? Because who knows what's going to happen next. I felt like, well, that's a, that's a nice storybook ending. You know, it's the, the guy's injured. He makes the comeback. Dan does really well, has to deal with crazy circumstances. You know, okay, I can accept it. I repeated that to myself on some level, in some fashion, hundreds of times, you know, especially that first quarantine, like, hey, isn't it nice that I got to do a little show? Like, you know, that was really important. I have no evidence, but we did find, of course, that a good proportion of dancers left, especially earlier than they expected, due to injury, Yeah, you know, which is well known in the field because the requirements are so difficult and so stringent. And, you know, people dance physically they're often when they shouldn't. Yeah, been there. Yep. In all professions, people have pushed themselves, but this has real consequences when you push yourself physically. Yeah. Yeah, I've got uh, ligaments that will never touch again and, right. and bones that will right. never come back together. <laughs> And I hate to say it, but there's a part of me that wears that proudly. Sure. It's almost like, yeah, yeah. I did that thing that was like stupid. And I, you know, I kept dancing. But, you know, on the, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I have a five-year-old granddaughter who loves ballet, you know, and we put on Swan Lake and she pirouettes around the house. And, you know, she took one class with fantastic Russian ballerinas who didn't take any guff. And, you know, the joy that you see in it it's incomparable, that kind of joy. That's why people do it. That's why I did it. Yeah. The, the advice you gave before, um, if you can do anything else, do that instead. Do it. Might apply to your granddaughter, but that's really for, for her yeah. to decide. 
Um, so I guess if there's a goal here with this conversation, it's to illuminate things, but also to help people. Like it's always to help others and to give people something to hold on to in, in times of confusion or darkness. It's very important to, to speak with and commiserate with like people when you're going through this, you're not the only one. And I know, I mean, many people, of course, are having their own therapy and their own coaching and so forth, but it's also important to be with your confrères, you know, to be in a, in a group of people who really understand what this is and how difficult this is. Especially when the loss of community, the loss of your people, your tribe, is such a big component of the identity crisis that we feel when we stop dancing. You know, I, I know who I am when I walk into a studio, right? Put a woman in front of me and I know what to do with my hands and I'll lift her and pirouette her and it's good. What are you going to do? Put stacks of paper in front of me or a computer? Like, I, don't, I don't know how to relate to these things. So right. I hear that. Yeah. If you're going to lose that community to some degree, there's a, at least an interim community or like, a, like another community of people who are going through something very similar. Don't ostracize yourself. Don't leave yourself on an island. Go connect. That's a good action item. Anybody can do that. Um, it occurred to me too, dancing, you know, we spend somewhere usually between 10 and 30 years on dancing. Even if you're just in school, you can school for 10 years and then you turn 18 and you, you, you don't dance. Or you can start at three and go till 40 and that's 37 years of your life, you know? So it's decades usually at least. And or you like, can be Martha Graham and go till 96. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or Peggy Baker dancing uh, well into her 60s and still going. So it's like we're learning this language. And I, I think however you want to hear it, it's going to be beautiful. It's eloquent. It's articulated, right? Ballet is this beautiful language. And mostly as kids, we all write in block letters and we, you know, huff around the room and we don't really know what we're doing. And the whole point is we're trying to make you fluent in a language that is not natural to you, right? Some people are born speaking it beautifully, but most of us have our thick accents and we're trying to work those accents out, right? And if you spend 30 years speaking a language every day for eight hours a day, and then you just stop speaking that language, right? Like ballet as a language develops a part of our brain, right? Like a whole part of our brain is devoted to seeing the world and conversing in this way. When we speak that language, we know how we fit in. We know what it does for us. And then it's, it's just, it might be taken from you suddenly. And so I'm guessing that for some people who that language feels like pain, maybe the injury is actually relief because they can stop speaking it and they can just put it down. But for those of us that feel like, well, I mean, it's a complicated relationship. It's a, it's a love hate, you know, but I still, there is love there. And maybe there's a lot more than that. There's a foundation of who I am. Finding a way to keep speaking that language is important. So I imagine a lot of people would just try to find something like, do I have ballet friends I can still hang out with? Maybe I see the ballet, I get involved with the board, arts management, like you've talked about. I keep teaching on the side, something so that, you know, if, if you grow up in Poland and you move to North America, you still want to speak Polish. Like you don't want to lose your heritage, right? And this feels like heritage. So I, I'm going to go back to something you said earlier in complete relation to what you're saying right now. And that is, you know, you said, I know people say, I have skills, they're translatable. Yeah, I know all that. Well, mm -hmm. those translatable skills are part of this, what you beautifully described as the language of ballet. Because when you can find those things in yourself, you do well 
that you learned because of ballet and translate them into something else that also makes you happy, that's when you have a successful transition. And those, we could call those skills and yeah, discipline and I show up on time and not a job, but basically it really is using those same aspects of yourself and pouring them into something else, which is scary and which may not always work, but it also may work. I just, I feel like I'm staring at an abyss. Like I'm, I'm like looking at, okay, how does this apply to me? Like, how does, how do I connect with this? Right. And I'm just looking out. I will tell you this. I am hopeful. I'm not in the panic state I was before. Um, I don't get like massively panicky, but there was an underlying layer of, uh, and uh, <laughs> it's calmer now. I think part of it also has to do with, I've gotten a lot more physical. Like I'm simply just working my body. Right. You know, I'm going for runs. I'm doing something. Um, exercise is the best antidepressant, right? Just keep the body moving, push yourself, okay. right? Ever since I've started doing that, I've felt like yeah, just a little bit more chipper every day. Like, oh, today's going to be fun. <laughs> you know, like- uh, I should also tell you that in, in the research, this research and other research, the best graduate students who worked under me as researchers were former dancers. They were committed. They know how to show up on all the things I just said to you. They know how to show up on time. They know what discipline is. They know how to take direction and, and they care or they don't do it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And all that is, you know, is enlightening and edifying and also good for the work. I, I mean, I'm sure it was good for them as well, but it was also good for the project mm -hmm. and good for the people in the project. And so you know, this is a world full of the arts. There, there are so many ways to get involved, whether it's ballet specifically or not. There are so many ways to translate one's skills into a, a world that certainly has a large proportion of culture, even if we don't value it equally in our countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the skills that allow you to succeed. Um, I mean, actually, I would say the skills that are required for you to succeed even at a level of like just an entry level dance position, you already have to be so good, like so top tier. Yeah, it's right. like the, the worst guy in the NBA, like the worst That's player right. in the NBA is gonna just destroy anybody else because he had to right. be so good just to get on the bench. Um, so yeah, the, those same skills can help you whatever you wanna do, change the world, start a business, save people, make a lot of money, whatever it might be. The question that still hangs over me or the one that I don't have an answer for yet is what am I going to direct myself towards? And then the meta question becomes, how do we answer that question? Like, how do you even go about finding the answer when as a, an infant, as my mother was on a couple of weeks ago and she told the story as a little kid, I knew I wanted to be a ballet dancer. That certainty it's kind of sets the bar for like, well, I don't really want to do anything I'm not certain about. Like it's, it, it, it makes life so livable when you know what you want to do and you know it's important. Figuring the next step out. And this is where I talk about my friend who had to pivot pretty early after high school, the bravery in just trying something new, like conducting yourself in a disciplined way when the circumstances have changed. So maybe you're not going to get the guarantee in your mind, heart, and soul that this is the right thing for you, but you don't let that stop you from trying. 
right? Just like when you do a pirouette exercise from the corner, you don't know you're going to nail it, but you're trying to nail it. You, and if you mess it up, you probably do it again, you know? Absolutely. And I think the one thing that people have to, I learned this years ago from a great therapist say is what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah. All right. It doesn't work or I don't get it or I didn't like it. Okay. I'll try something else. I'll try it again. I'll try to do it over. It's that wall of fear that stops people because I knew how to do X and I don't know what Y even is. Never mind if I can do it. And very much what you said at the beginning, this prescribed, this is what I eat. This is when I go to class. This is what I dance. This is, these are the exercises I do. You know, and that's hard to, to unlearn in the sense that it becomes productive for you. Yeah, the, the inversion of I succeeded because everything was planned out for me. And now I have to flip it to nothing is planned out for me. I can choose anything. And that's terrifying. Uh, yes, yes. Par <laughs> paralyzing, uh, overwhelming, terrifying, right. uh, depressing, how, whatever. And so what's the worst thing that can happen? I pick something and it doesn't work. Okay. Not the end of the world. I guess the worst thing that could happen really would be that you did nothing, that you stayed paralyzed. It's yes, probably absolutely. the worst case scenario. Yeah, um, I agree. So I spoke yesterday to a former principal who I worked with in Estonia. It was very interesting. I wanted to speak to her before I spoke to you because she left dancing like three times, right? She left pretty close after school. She came back, became a soloist, left when she had a kid and then came back again. And then the season I joined, she was meant to retire but the next season they were like, actually, we don't have anybody who can do like all these roles you do. Would you mind just coming back for those? And she came back again. And then the next season they're like, actually. And so she came back again. So she was just like always returning. And I thought nobody I know is more of an expert on leaving dance than somebody who's left it like six times. And I asked her about like, you know, as she's now, she's truly thinking she's going to quit. Like she had an injury and then Corona happened. And so it was this kind of perfect storm of it's really time for you to move on this time. I asked her if she was concerned and she put it in such a simple way that it kind of made all of the panic stuff fall away. She said, yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing some courses right now. And when she's ready, if she wants, she'll go and get a job in that. And it put it so simply where it's like, maybe because ballet is so difficult and so specialized, you know, if you deviate by uh, 0.1 degrees at the beginning, you don't notice, but in a hundred miles, you're in a different city. With ballet, if you miss slightly, it might spell defeat. And so because the requirements are so specific and the competition is so fierce, I wonder if that can follow us, that mentality can follow us and then becomes what we project onto our next journey, right? Where it's, I have to nail it. You know, in ballet, you don't get to really waffle around. You got to pick by 10 years old, generally, you got to know, am I doing this as a professional? Do I want this? But I wonder if that's a mindset that is actually just all smoke and mirrors. My inclination is to say it is all smoke and mirrors. It's simply the projection of this idea onto the world that we have to know exactly what it is and it has to meet all of these requirements and that we have to meet those requirements as well. I actually think that was part of the reason that that former student said when she pulled her Kelly's tendon, I felt relief that I could stop. Exactly what you're talking about. Not just the physical, but this whole gestalt, right. I, what I was about to say when you said, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I thought she was going to say, live it. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. 
I think it's complicated. I think it requires compassion and other people, but also people need to realize they are by no means the only one who is going through this or who has gone through it. Speaking to somebody yesterday, the guy who had to pivot early, kind of just using this as an example, right? I feel proud of myself because I've gone on stage and performed these big roles and, you know, I've done it injured and I've done it in crazy circumstances and with new partners at last minutes and stuff like that. And so that is my, um, my badge of honor. You know, I wear that like in my soul, you can't take it away from me, but then you actually, you do take it away from me. You take the dance away and all of a sudden I feel a big regression, right? Cause you take the stage and the ballet shoes and the lights and the costumes away. Who am I now? So there's this big step backwards. And then I look at his story and he hasn't had these shows. He didn't do those things. But what he did is he fought a different battle and he fought a battle that a lot of us approach later. And he's now come out and he's kind of unshakable in that way, right? It's the, the achievement we gain having to learn to cope with not getting what we wanted, right? And having to look at the shadow self and look at the disappointment and, and really, really humble ourselves and then figure out who's left you know, when all of my ideas of success fell down, what was left? Well, I guess that's who I am, probably more in there, <laughs> you know, because you, you can't lose that which you really are, right? First of all, you learn a lot more from failing than from succeeding. Let's mm -hmm. start with that. That's absolutely the rule. Right. You don't right. learn a whole lot from it. It feels good when you succeed, but you learn a whole lot more from failing. And second of all, they can't take away your past. So, yeah, they can take away all the trappings and all that but it's still your past and you still did it. Yeah. And so that's a good thing, not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. that's the bedrock on which you're building. Look, I did this and I, and I got through it. In figuring out what do I do next? How do I pivot? How do I transition? How do I move on? I think there needs to be a real humbling, a real quietness. Because if, you know, if my dreams are be a principal dancer at a big company, whatever, and say, say I achieve it. And so in some sense, my dreams are validated, right? It's, you know, it's the world saying, yeah, have a big goal, you'll achieve it, right? Then I go, okay, well, now I don't have that. What's the next thing that's going to fill that void? Well, it has to be another really big goal, right? In my mind, I can liken that to saying, um, I open up a dating app, you know, on my phone for the first time. And I'm only looking for a soulmate, like day one, you know, that's too much pressure. That's, it's too big of a thing to start with that. And so you're setting yourself up to stumble because you're trying to take way too big of a step when you're not ready for it at all. And so this is, I think, where the courageous part is, the bravery comes in when your mind, your ambition is telling you, your fear, your panic is telling you, hey, man, we got to make money. We got to have a legacy. We got to take care of our family, like whatever it might be. It's telling you dream big, look big, only have big ideas. But it might actually take, like you've talked about, might actually, you might need to grieve first, right? Rather than, rather than asking what's next, maybe ask what's right now. Like, what do we need right now? And slow it down. Stop thinking about, because with ballet too, ballet, I'm 31. I've been dancing since I was five. It's 26 years. When I think of what's the next thing for me, is that 26 years? Oh my God. I'm almost 60 by the end of that. Like there's a lot of pressure on this next decision yeah, I make. Yeah, and I need correct. to make the decision right now because in my panic mind, time's running out, money's not being made, you know, I'm only getting older. I, I think 
you know, at a moment like this, it's good to ask yourself, what have I lost? And what do I like? Instead of all this big goals, as you just described it, we got to have the whole package in front of us by tomorrow morning. Mm. Start small, you know, start, I don't know if I'd call it humbling myself, but I would call it introspection for sure. And trying to find out what makes you happy. What do you like? And you have to have time to grieve for what you've lost. And I always tell people about any kind of grief. It doesn't get better. It just gets different. When I say humbling myself, I mean, smallify. I mean, let's, yeah. let's, let's pull back on the expectations and the grand ideas. Let's slow it down. Yeah. Um, let's reduce our expectations for a little while, right? And because I think also, I, I love opportunities. I like to look for opportunities to be courageous because it means I'm pushing myself, right? To step up and be brave, even in small ways, you know? Taking the time to be quiet and listen can actually paradoxically be the grand, brave, big step forward. Because Absolutely, it can also make you ready for the opportunity that will come your way. Because otherwise the opportunity may come and you're so embroiled in this, I've got to decide, I got to decide right now, I got to decide tomorrow that you go right past it. Yeah, I like what you said to me too when, when we spoke on the weekend, just to just try something and just jump off a bridge and just try it. Right. Um, I like that. I hear that as like faith, as in accepting, I'm not in control of this, I'm just going to see how it right. goes. I don't know what's going to happen. And for people who have the kind of control that ballet imposes, really hard to do that. I think learning moderation is another one because in dance, we work in extremes a lot of the time, right? So a lot of dancers don't really party, don't really drink, right? Because we can't, you know, and some do sure, right? but in general, yeah. we're not huge partiers. Um, so maybe when you stop dancing, it becomes the other end of the spectrum and you just go nuts, right? Because we had to repress and now we go crazy. Certainly eating can be a thing once you realize, oh, the world doesn't actually care if I'm like super jacked and skinny, I'll just eat whatever I want we can get lost in that because we're kind of making up for lost calories. But there's the other side, which is when I work out, when I'm physical, I only know how to go so hard and into painful regions, you know, that kind of thing. Learning how to be gentle and patient is another hurdle, I bet. By the way, these are the same lessons you learn as you get older. Okay. okay. Same lessons Great. with aging, really. How much right. can you do? How much can't you do? What's too much? What's too little? What keeps me involved? What doesn't? So these are lessons for your whole life, not just for right now. Right. I think also one more piece is in deciding what are you going to do next? A good question to ask, you tell me if you agree with this, is reflect on your own values. What is necessary in your mind to have a, a life worth living on this planet? Or, or maybe you can even ask, what was it about dancing that was so enthralling? Right. And if, once you figure those out, then again, like you said, if you can find out how you can redirect those, you're likely going to have a positive transition, right? Because at right. least, you know, you're moving towards something that's important. Right. People don't like to talk about depression, but I think we're getting better with that these days. I think it's shifting. The, the, the stigma is lifting. And to, not, not necessarily to expect, but to be prepared for and accepting of any sadness to not expect yourself to just be in a good mood and know what's next, but really just be super gentle with yourself, especially at the beginning. The one thing I would add to all this, 
that we've mentioned a few times, but not in any depth. We've just gone through a pandemic. So not only is this monumental stuff, but it's even more monumental in the environment in which we're trying to operate. Everything is magnified. Everything is outsized. Everything is scarier. Everything is tentative. So you know, be kind to yourself. This is a crazy time. It's a crazy time. And we're not done yet. Is there a question dancers could be asking themselves while they're still totally wrapped up in the dance career so that they're not forced to deal with all of this all at once when they step away, you know, as, as parting wisdom, parting words? Can I not be afraid of change? Hmm. I'll add just to gently, while you're most of you focusing on the next show and the promotions you want, all that stuff, which is great. Let a small part of your mind just start to play with the idea. And I mean, emphasize play, keep it fun. What else might I do? You know, like what if theater shut down again? What, what would bring me joy? That's the question right there. Right there. What would bring me joy? Yeah. And just play with that. And, and just wherever that goes, it's, it's free. It's, it's, it's easy. There's no pressure put on it. It's not, how do I monetize this? Which I really understand. It's like anything I enjoy doing. It's like, can I make money? Can I do that? Can I sell that? Like, and some of it, you know, you can actually still do while you're dancing. You know, you can find out more, you can read more, you can explore more, you can ask other people about it mm -hmm. without giving up anything. And if that can be a space where a little something grows, you know, a little love space yeah. inside you grows while it's happening, uh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Joan, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Do you want to plug anything that you're affiliated with? Well, the Actors Fund, but many people know about that. The Actors Fund also houses career transition for dancers. Yeah. So if anyone is in the area of the United States, the Actors Fund operates with offices in California, Illinois, and New York, but they serve people all over the country. Okay. So dancers should definitely think about getting in touch. Yeah. I'm going to link all of the dancer transition centers Good. across the world in the episode bio. So everybody, thank you for listening. You can find us on Instagram at 22guys and on Facebook at 22guys. Email us at tutuguyspod at gmail.com. Um, Joan, we've loved having you on the show. Preparing for this, I learned so much about you and about this topic, and it's been really, really exciting. Um, Thanks so much. It's really nice to meet you. Great. And you too? Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Do you have a sense of belonging anywhere? Dance. Just dance. Dance.